the one who strengthens us. We give you praise and honor and all glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray for all those in our world who are tyrannized and ill-treated. We pray for all those who are persecuted and slain for Christ's sake. Let no trial shake their faith or embitter their hearts, but keep them faithful and true to the end. We also pray for all those who are wronged and oppressed, defrauded or betrayed. Defend them, Lord, in their despair. And Lord, keep them from anger and bitterness. We pray for those who are downcast. We pray for those who have had their hopes shattered, who are hurt and bruised in spirit. We pray, Lord, for those who serve without thanks. Preserve them by your good spirit from a heart of grief. Lord, we pray for those who are friendless and for those who are homeless. We pray for the refugee, for the wanderer, for the prisoner. Lord, have pity on them. Lord, may they be brought into your family so that they become part of a community and the ultimate community, your community. <clears throat> we pray for all those who have been left behind and forgotten, for those who are afraid. We pray for the defeated, the timid, the brokenhearted. We pray that you befriend them and comfort them and abide with them. Lord, we pray for those who are tempted to destroy themselves, to become enslaved by drink or drugs or other addictions. We pray for those whose feet are caught in a web. We pray, God, that you, through Christ, will break off these chains and set them free. Lord, we pray for all those who are your children, who desire to do your will and yet falter continually. We pray for those with doubtful hearts. We pray for those who struggle after purity. We pray for those who struggle with evil imaginations. Lord, we pray that we will fear the cross and that you will give strength to all that we will find strength in you to overcome the things that are destroying us. Lord, we pray for the sick and for the fevered. We pray for those worn by disease or stricken by accident. We pray for those who have been deprived of sight or speech or healing or hearing, and we pray for healing upon them, relieve them from their suffering, revive them, heal their wounds, and make them whole. And Lord, we pray for the elderly. We pray for those who know that death is drawing near. Lord, sustain them with unclouded faith to the very end. Lord, we pray that you will be with us and raise us from the dead and that we will be with you for all of eternity. Comfort us, O oh God, and make us those who are full of life that we can rejoice in you, rejoice in the work that you have accomplished in so many of us. And Lord, that we can be your hands and feet to bring peace and to bring hope and to bring comfort to a world that is so often suffering. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
by way of show of hands, who here has ever heard of Bob Ezrin? Not many. Derek, but that's kind of cheating because I told you on Tuesday. Yeah, I thought that. If that was a question on a Trivial Pursuit game that you were playing, I'm sure that your turn would now be over. But what if I were to ask you the question of, who's ever heard of Alice Cooper? Anybody? You could admit it. Anybody heard of Alice Cooper? Yes, it's probably a name that most of us do recognize. For almost 50 years, since 1969, when he came out with his first album, Alice Cooper has been one of the biggest names in rock and roll. But Alice's first two albums, his album in 1969 and his album in 1970, were not very successful. Other than a few local people from where his band was playing, nobody had known who Alice Cooper was at that time. But that's when Bob Ezrin entered the picture. According to Alice's autobiography, which, yes, I just read a couple of weeks ago, his manager, Shep Gordon, connected Alice Cooper with Bob Ezrin. Now, Alice Cooper says that when Bob Ezrin was first introduced to him, he looked at the guy and said, who is this guy? He was this young, classically trained kid, kind of preppy, and kind of a pretty boy. But Ezrin approached Cooper's band and said to them right from the beginning, we're going to spend the next seven months in a barn. I've got a barn that we are going to lock ourselves away into, and we're going to work in this barn for 12 hours a day and thrash out material from the time we get up in the morning until the time we can't stand up at night. And then Cooper goes on to say how Ezrin then took the band and started to work with every single player in the band. He fine-tuned the guitar playing of the guitar player. He did the same thing with the drummer. Cooper described how Ezrin then worked with Cooper's vocals to give him a, a signature sound and a voice. He writes, he retaught us how to play our instruments. We had to learn, we had to unlearn everything we knew and then relearn it better. We economized our sound. We instituted the right key and tempo changes. We sharpened up the lyrics. And after seven months of working like this with Bob Ezrin, they released their next album, and Alice Cooper went platinum. Soon, Alice Cooper was one of the biggest rockers in the world. But who's ever heard of Bob Ezrin? Here's another one for you. How many of you have heard of Gerald Butts? Don't see many hands on that one either. There was one hand over there. Unless you follow politics closely, you've probably never heard of Gerald Butts. But here's a question that I hope everyone puts their hand up to. How many of you have heard of Justin Trudeau? Okay, that would be bad if there were hands that didn't go up there. Since 2015, he's become the Prime Minister of Canada. But during Trudeau's run for leadership, Gerald Butts was Justin's campaign manager. After Gerald comes through a town, his job is to make sure that everybody knows who Justin Trudeau is. 
He wants people to think that Justin Trudeau is the best person on the planet, the most capable person of leading this country. That's the campaign manager's job. If, just, if Gerald Butts leaves the town, and after he leaves the town, everybody's talking about how wonderful Gerald Butts is, and that there was some Justin What's-His-Name that he was promoting, he's failed his job. He'd probably lose his job if that's what happened. The campaign manager's job is to promote the person that they are trying to help get into office or become the prime minister. Gerald Butts and Bob Ezrin's goal in life was to make someone else shine. They were not trying to make a name for themselves. They were trying to make a name for someone else. They knew that they had done their job well when the crowds flocked to the people they were promoting. Their job was to prepare the way for someone else and then get out of the way. So that at the end, people saw Justin Trudeau and not Gerald Butts. So that after it was all done, people knew about Alice Cooper, not Bob Ezrin. Now the picture you see on your screen right now is a well-known painting that I have in my office. I was inspired by the theologian Karl Barth to do this because he had the same thing in his study, the same painting there as well. What the painting is, is a picture of Jesus on the cross with John the Baptist pointing to him. Now the picture is not meant to be historically accurate. By the time Jesus died on the cross, John the Baptist was already dead. The picture, the painting, is meant to be theologically accurate in the fact that John's ministry, John's job was to point people to Jesus. The pointing finger of John was his job. We are to look at the center of the painting. That's what it's all about. Christ and him crucified. If we get distracted and we start looking at John, that finger is to draw us back to the center of the painting. John's ministry was to show the world Christ. To make a name for Jesus. John would have been totally fine if we were to ask, who's ever heard of John the Baptist? If every hand in the room went up when the question was, who's heard of Jesus? Because his job was for Jesus to shine. That's why John said, Jesus must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. That's my ministry. And so this morning... We want to continue on with where we left off in John last week from John 1.14 and want to see the ministry of John and what John is doing in pointing us to Jesus. John 1 verse 14, we read this as we have read the last couple of weeks. The word became human, the word meaning Jesus became human. He made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. 
And then we read, John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. As we've talked in the last couple of weeks, the pre-existent word became human, which means by definition, he became flesh and blood. And the word became the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle or temple, meaning that in him, in Christ, was the full Shekinah glory, the divine presence of God, filled Jesus Christ, he was fully human and he was fully God. All the ways that the tabernacle prepared us for a relationship with God were now fulfilled in Jesus as the true tabernacle. And John the Baptist wants to make sure we get this right. John the Baptist is mentioned five times in the first five chapters of the Gospel of John and then he disappears from the scene altogether. And that's done on purpose. John is simply there to prepare the way. To make sure that we start on the right path. Because if we start on the wrong path, we will come up with many misconceptions about Jesus. Many people have ideas about Jesus. They grab ideas from Jesus from from pop culture, they grab ideas from Jesus, maybe from a fringe non-Christian group, they grab ideas from Jesus from some kind of new age philosophy, so they start right from the beginning with wrong ideas about Jesus. And then it leads them to increasingly wrong ideas about the world, about life, about themselves, and about God. John is wanting to make sure that from the very beginning, we start right with Jesus. We understand who Jesus is right from the beginning so that as we begin to journey with Jesus, we are going in the right direction. And so John's right there in the beginning, preparing the way and then getting out of the way. John wants to prepare the way. He doesn't want to be the way. It's the word, Jesus, who is the way. Who John represents is another reason John appears at the beginning of Jesus' story. Uh, The painting that you saw before had John the Baptist with his finger pointing to Jesus. But if you would have looked at the picture a little bit more closely, you might have also seen that when John was pointing to Jesus, in his other arm, he was holding a book. The book there is the Bible that he's holding, particularly the Old Testament. That what John is, is John is the Old Testament personified. John represents what the purpose of the Old Testament was for. 
John helps us understand how we are to approach and how we are to read and how we are to understand the Old Testament. John is the culmination of the Old Testament. He illustrates the purpose of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is summed up in the pointing finger of John to Jesus. John came to prepare the way for Christ, just like the whole Old Testament story is there to prepare the way for Christ. John came to point us to Jesus, just as the Old Testament is there to point us to Jesus. The people, the covenant, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the kings, everything in the story is pointing to Jesus. John came to decrease so that Christ could increase just as the Old Testament begins to decrease in light of Christ. As Christians, this means that we read the Old Testament through the theological grid of John's pointing finger. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament stories are not meant to be morality tales. Written down, trying to teach us leadership skills on how to start a small business. Written down to be used as some kind of parenting manual. The Old Testament laws and sacrifices and ceremonies are not meant to be bylaws for the church constitution or the development of a supposed Christian society. The stories and the laws and the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the people are there to point us to Jesus. If we don't understand this, we get the Old Testament wrong. And we use it and make it do many things that it was not meant to do. As great as the Old Testament is, as great as John the Baptist is, Jesus is greater. In his role as the Old Testament, John the Baptist said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. Almost sounds like John's speaking in riddles there. What is John saying? John is saying that in Jesus' humanity, Jesus was born six months after John was born. In Jesus' humanity, Jesus came after John. Just like in his humanity, Jesus came after the Old Testament. Someone is coming after me. Yet, he says, this Jesus is far greater than me. And far greater than the Old Testament. Why? Because in his divinity, Jesus predates John. He predates the Old Testament. In fact, he predates all of creation. The word Jesus existed long before John. As we read from the very first words in the Gospel of John, in the beginning the word already existed and nothing was created except through him in his humanity he comes after me but in his deity he precedes me and is far greater than i 
He is the one who not only the Old Testament was pointing to, but he is the one that was there before the beginning of the Old Testament. He was the author of the story. He was the one that the story was pointing to, and he was the one that prepared and wrote the story that pointed to him. He was there all along, preparing the way for his becoming human after the Old Testament story. His coming was not meant to simply rescue creation, but his coming was to make even his original creation better. His coming was to turn water into wine. John says, out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. I love that line. This, we've received grace upon grace. I mean, what, is that, what does it even mean to receive grace upon grace? Well, the words there are meant to be not dissected, but they're meant to overwhelm us. They're meant in the same kind of way when you first fall in love with someone and you're on the phone and and you're, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. No, no, you hang up first. No, no, you hang up first. And then you say, you know, I just love you. And then the person says, I love you more. No, 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 I love you even more. Well, I love you more times two. Yeah, well, I love you, I love you times infinity. Oh, well, I love you times infinity times two. No, no, no. I love you times infinity times infinity times two. And you go on. and No, 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 you hang up. No, you hang up. That's kind of what this is saying. Out of his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. Infinity times two. In Christ, God has given us grace, and then he supersized it. That's how good his grace is. That is why Paul gives us so many warnings about not going backwards to the Old Testament ways. Not that they were bad, but that they served their purpose. All the laws and the ceremonies and customs served their purpose in being pointers to Jesus. They were not the end in itself, they were pointing. When we make it about the signs, we become like the confused dog who, when we want to give them something to eat, and we say, Benji, Benji, right there, right there's your food, and the dog looks at your finger. And you're like, no, no, there, there's your food, and it keeps just looking at your finger. You're trying to point the dog to the food. If the dog just keeps looking at your finger, it's going to starve. It's the same way spiritually. We are to look to where the Old Testament, to where John the Baptist, to where the finger is pointing. Where the true spiritual food is. To Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus came not only to rescue his creation, but he came to make it better. 
He came to help us grow up, not merely save us. And sometimes we forget this in the church. That God's plan was not simply to save us to go back to the original Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Yes, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were innocent, but they were also immature. God's plan right from the beginning was not that that was the full state, but that they would grow up into the things of God. From the beginning of his creation of humanity, God's plan was to grow Adam and Eve into maturity, which in their innocent state they had not yet reached. They were still like children. Salvation is not about going back to innocence and immaturity. It's about going forward. And this is one of the profound differences about Christianity when it came on the scene as compared to all the pagan religions around. With all the pagan religions that were around in the Roman days, what the idea there was to go back to some pristine, bygone past age. Many of the pagan religions all longed for a day in the past that was perfect, that if we could just get back to that. But Christianity was never about looking backwards. From day one, it was about looking forwards. It was forward-looking, looking for something that was better than Eden. More full, more complete, more real, more finished, mature, growing up, full-growing. That's what God created us for. When I was 10, I had to ask my parents if I was allowed to ride my bike to the Rolly View store. And yes, that is a real picture of me at about 10 years old that I could find. I do not know what my parents were thinking with the haircut, but anyway. If I wanted to go to the Rolly View store, I had to ask my parents for permission. If I wanted to go over to a friend's house to play, I had to ask my parents for permission. And the fact that I did do those things showed that I was a good, obedient, and faithful son. But I'm 43 today. And if I want to get on my bike and go to 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee, if I pick up the telephone and I ask my dad for permission... He's going to wonder what's wrong with me. If I want to go over to my friend's house to hang out and I still have to ask my mom, they're no longer going to think of me as good, obedient, and faithful. They're going to think I have problems. Because that's not normal when you're 43. We can mix this up in our spiritual life too. Think about our prayers. Over the years, have our prayers matured? Are we still approaching God and are we still asking God for the same kinds of things today that we did 30 years ago? Or have they grown? Do we still approach God with things where, like our parents, God might be saying to us, 
why are you still praying to me about this? I gave you a brain. Make a decision yourself. We are to mature. If we mature and we grow and we understand who God is and we understand his will and we understand his character traits and he's helping us become formed into his likeness, there should become points when I start to just know what I should do without even having to pray about it. If I, when I was two years old, had to ask my parents to tie my shoes and pick up my food and and get my ball and wipe my bum, that's normal. If I were to still ask my parents to do that right now, I would be in the hospital. Because that is not normal. It would be an insult to them. It's the same in our spiritual life, that Christ came... To help us grow into maturity. Not to just save us. Yes, he came to do that too. But to mature us. The plans right from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Though it went off course and he had to deal with the sin issue too. But was to mature them. So that we can now have true adult conversations with God. Jesus came to save us and mature us into a more adult relationship with him. And this is what John is saying. This is some way where people say, why this long Old Testament process? Why after Adam and Eve sinned, why didn't Jesus just come right away and save us? Because all that would have done was save us to be babies for all of eternity. God's goal was not simply to save us but to save us to become full-growing adults in him. Listen to how the, the message translates what John says here in John. We all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift, grace upon grace. We got the basics from Moses. And then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding All this came through Jesus, the Messiah. Notice, we got the basics from Moses. Basics are good when we're at the stage for basics. But if we're still using the basics when we should be fully growing or more mature, they become a hindrance. We got the basics from Moses, from the Old Testament. We got the basics from John the Baptist. But now the basics have served its purpose so that we can go on to do greater things. It's like the illustration I gave last year of the training wheels. Training wheels are wonderful things when you're trying to figure out how to ride your bike. They can save you from a lot of scraped knees and from breaking your arm, breaking fingers... But once you know how to ride your bike, once you become proficient at riding your bike, and let's say really good at riding your bike, so you can do off-roading, you can do some of the mountain stuff where you go off mountain trails. Could you imagine an experienced biker who loves to do mountain off-roading saying, you know what, this is really cool, but if I put the training wheels back on, that would even be better. No, it wouldn't. You would seriously hurt yourself. 
But that's a lot of ways that sometimes Christians think about the Old Testament. Wow, if we can have Jesus and the New Testament stuff and, and tack back on some of that Old Testament stuff, that would be really rich. No, it wouldn't. That's throwing the training wheels back on. That actually trips you up. It hurts you. It hinders you in being able to live your Christian life, to bike down the hill. Once the training wheels have fulfilled the purpose, and they're good, there's no more need for the training wheels. The law was given through Moses, what John the Baptist represents, but those were basics. But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ, and that's so much better. As Christians and as we mature, we now no longer live by law. Because law is restrictive. Law is for children. When you live by law, it's like when you have a little child. And when you have little children, as you know, you have to lock down every single cupboard in the house. You put little locks on the inside so they can't pull it. You put gates up so they can't fall down the stairs. You, you nail everything down. You lock everything down so that your kids won't hurt themselves. That's what the law is there for. It's good. It protects you. But when you mature, when you grow older in the faith, you no longer live by law, but you live by love. And when you live by love, you understand purpose behind things. And so you live in freedom. Now what you want to do is you want to take all the locks off the doors. Why? Because now that you know the purpose, you want to start opening the drawers. You want to start pulling out the ingredients, the, the, the cups and the bowls and the spoons and things that you can now put together and creatively begin to make cakes and cookies and pies. You no longer are hindered by the law to protect you like a child. Now that you know the purpose, you are now living in the freedom of love to create the way God has intended you to create. John the Baptist in the Old Testament are the law. They are a school. They are the school teachers training us to graduate into Christ. Who has come and made God known so that we can now see God fully growing. Now there's one thing that is significantly different between John the Baptist and Gerald Butts and Bob Ezrin. See, Gerald Butts and Bob Ezrin, in many ways, their job was not merely to promote Alice Cooper and Justin Trudeau. Their job was to make Justin Trudeau, and Alice Cooper. Not so with John the Baptist. John the Baptist did not make Jesus who Jesus was. John the Baptist was merely to point people to Jesus because of the recognition of how superior Jesus is to John the Baptist and the Old Testament. As John 1.18 reminds us, no one has ever seen God. Paul even makes this more exhaustive. 
Paul says, no one has ever seen God or ever will see God. Some people find this surprising. They're like, what? I thought I was going to see God one day. No. The Bible says no one's ever seen God and no one ever will see God. Paul says that God lives in unapproachable light. God is spirit. We're material. And our eternal state will also be material, not non-material spirits. Plus, God is everywhere. God is in all places at all times. So, you tell me, how do you see an invisible spirit that's everywhere at all times? It's impossible. Utterly impossible. Even the angels cannot see God. Though angels are non-material, angels are not everywhere at once. They have location. So we must remember that the language in Revelation is symbolic language when it talks about the angels around the throne of God. Well, what? I thought they could see God. They're around the throne of God. We have to remember the symbols of Revelation. We're not talking about God sitting on a literal chair as if he is like Zeus with angels literally standing around the chair. It's a picture. The throne is a picture that God rules. The angels around the throne is a picture that God is eternally worshipped by his creation. God in his full essence of who he is is unapproachable, unseeable, everywhere, pure spirit. No one has seen God. No one ever will see God. John's reminding us of this. But, John says, but Jesus became human. And Jesus is still fully God and fully human. Jesus, after he died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, Jesus did not shed his humanity like a snake sheds its skin. Jesus chose to become human, and Jesus chose to remain human for all eternity. Jesus always will be the divine human one. And because of that, Jesus is the only one who has seen God because he comes from God, from God's very presence. And because he has become human, it is in Jesus that we see God. No one has ever seen God, John says, but the unique one who is himself God. Or as the NIV puts it, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God. And yet this unique one, this one and only Son, Jesus, is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father. And yet, the verse ends by saying, and yet Jesus has revealed God to us. We see God when we see Jesus. Jesus is the face of God. Jesus is whom we will see. Jesus is the one that we will stand before, and Jesus is who we will see in Jesus' humanity. As Jesus' humanity is the face of God that we can see. 
By becoming human, meaning flesh and blood, Jesus became the face of God for those to see. Jesus is the person of God we can see. And because he has chosen to remain human, which means Jesus has a body, which we can see, we can touch, we can feel. He is the person of God that we will see on the day that we rise from our graves and stand before God. No one has ever seen God or ever will see God, but we will see God in the humanity he has chosen to become in the person of Jesus Christ. These first Number of verses, the first 20 verses or so in John, so much hold the tension of Jesus as fully God and fully human. Even within each verse, you see both there. He is fully human and he is fully God. It's no wonder John the Baptist pointed to him. Because to point to anyone else is blasphemous. Only the fully God one is the one to point to. Because no one else stands for and is the things that Jesus is. John the Baptist did not create Jesus any more than the Old Testament created Jesus. John the Baptist merely pointed to Jesus just as the Old Testament pointed to Jesus as the ultimate one. The one whom all creation is moving towards. Jesus, in fact, is the one who created John the Baptist. Jesus is the one who wrote the story of the Old Testament. Jesus is the author behind it all. That's why they point to him. That's why John said, someone is coming after me, yes, chronologically, in his humanity, But he is far greater than I am. Because in his deity he existed long before me. This someone is none other than God himself who in Jesus became fully human. So that again in Jesus we too could grow up and become fully human. And walk with the God we can now see in Jesus. Our intent is not And God's intent for us is not for us to become like Adam and Eve before they sinned. God's intent for us now is for us to become like Jesus after his resurrection. To share in him in the full humanity of what it means to be human. Salvation is not found in John the Baptist. Salvation, it's good for us to remember, is not even found in the Bible. Old or New Testament. Salvation is found in Jesus. This Bible is a finger pointing to Jesus. And salvation is not just Jesus offering forgiveness, but about Jesus becoming fully human in order to mature us to become fully human in him. So, of course, John the Baptist was important. Of course, the the, the Bible is important. But let's remember their proper place. Their pointers. 
jokingly, some have said that in evangelical circles, we tend to believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible rather than the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not deity. It merely points to the deity. We don't worship the John the Baptist. We don't worship the Bible as Martin Luther reminded us. The Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. If you're reading this and it's not continually pointing you to Christ, you're reading it incorrectly. Because it is represented by John the Baptist. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Even those that came after John the Baptist, like Peter and Paul and the apostles, who had a much greater understanding than John because of when they lived, they were doing the same thing, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Even the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit's role? How do we know if we're a Holy Spirit-filled church? You know what the Holy Spirit's job is? Is not to say, look at me, I'm the Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit-filled church is a church that's focused on Jesus. The Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. What does the Father do? The Father keeps, this is my son, this is my son, who I'm well pleased. It's about Jesus. Jesus, God whom we can see. Let's keep the pointers and the one pointing and being pointed to in their proper place. The one we worship is Jesus. The Gospel of John will remind us of this throughout, as we are going to see. Uh, Many times the crowds and the people get distracted by the signs and the wonders the feeding of the 5,000, and all through the Gospels, we have to keep reminding ourselves, and the Gospel writer himself will keep reminding us, these are merely pointers. It's not about the miracles, it's not about the food, it's not about the feeding, it's not about this, it's that these point to Jesus. He's the one we worship. In that light, this Sunday, the third Sunday of the months, we usually celebrate communion. And this is precisely what communion is all about, too. It's not about the, the bread and the cup that's on the table here. It's not as if these elements have any kind of magical power behind them. It's not as if these elements can somehow save you or make you right with God. It's Jesus who does that. But in a very physical, tangible way, these elements point to Jesus. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat the bread, remember that this bread that you are eating is pointing to me. The one who came to save you and to feed you so that you can mature into what it means to be fully human. Every time you take the cup, remember it's not about the cup, but every time you take the cup, remember that this cup points to me. It points out to you that it is because of my blood that I shed for you, that you can have the forgiveness of sins, that you can be in a right relationship with God through me so that you can grow into full maturity of what it means to be fully human. We want to invite you this morning, 
If you want to come to the middle, you can come and kneel. I'll serve you here or come to one of the side stations. There'll be people to serve you there. And then after those who are unable to come forward, I will serve you where you are seated. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, wherever you are at in your relationship with him, what matters is that you've said yes to Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, just beginning or been journeying with him for a long time, we want to invite you to come and participate as a community and remembering that it's all about Jesus. We take and eat in remembrance of him. Let's pray as the praise team comes forward. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you gave us so many signs and so many ways of preparation so that we would be without excuse and so that we would be prepared to receive you. And Lord, we know that even as we do, there's so much more. The signs point to you, and then when we find you, we look back at the signs and we recognize there's so much more to them. Lord, we thank you so much for how you have prepared a way for us to be in a relationship with God and to become fully who you've intended us to become. We pray, God, that as we partake now of these pointers, that we will be surrendering ourselves to you and saying, yes, Lord, not only have I surrendered myself to you, but continue to recreate me and make me into the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and receive.